You know, it's easy to live the Christian life when everything is going well and hitting on all cylinders. But when the stresses and anxieties of life hit, when things don't go as planned, when you experience great disappointments, how do you feel? And more consequentially, how willing are you to live out the Christian life? I venture to guess when things aren't going your way or things aren't going as planned, or when you with great certainty know something will happen, but then it doesn't happen and you are greatly disappointed, your motivation to live the Christian life isn't very high. A few weeks ago, when our family was ready to fly to the USA for some ministry commitments, I was pleasantly surprised when one of my relatives said that she had a ton of upgrade points that were soon expiring. She would try to upgrade all of us to business class for free, but that we would have to wait on the upgrade list. What a blessing to possibly get business class when you pay economy seat prices. So I checked every day for a month to see what were our chances for a free upgrade. There are about 30 business class seats available, and we were numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 on the upgrade wait list. Well, with one week left before the flight, there were still 21 business class seats available, and we had moved down two slots to 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, but there was still a great chance of being upgraded. And even if it was only me that got upgraded, that was all right. My school-aged children are far too young to experience the luxuries of life. Two days before the flight, there were still about 18 business class seats, and we still had positions 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 on the list. Last-minute prices were more than $10,000 one way, and so the chances that more than 10 seats would be sold were pretty low. I was already dreaming about being pampered while sitting in a nice, comfortable chair with great legroom for the 13-hour flight from Tokyo Narita to Texas. Well, guess what? 36 hours before departure, half a world away, there were terrible thunderstorms in the eastern part of the U.S., which led to a lot of flight cancellations, including many Tokyo, Narita, to New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. flights. That meant all those passengers who were in Japan and wanted to fly to North America had to be rerouted to our flight to Texas just to get them across the Pacific to the U.S. for connecting flights. In an instant, those 18 business class seats were all gone as the other passengers who were flying business were put into our flight. I was very disappointed, but I still held onto some hope that this would turn out positively because my cousin, who was in Japan flying to the U.S. 24 hours before me, told me it was chaos at the Narita airport, and they were offering $700 to $800 per person on her flight if people were willing to take a later flight as the planes were now oversold. I quickly did the math in my head. That's about $3,500 for our family of five with free accommodations in Japan, and we could even visit Tokyo Disney. We would take the offer. I even prepared our kids to have a change of clothes in their hand carry in case we took the anticipated offer. When we got to Tokyo Narita, guess what? They were no longer offering any compensation on our U.S. flight to volunteers who would give up their seats to others. Admittedly, I didn't have a great attitude when I boarded the plane because I felt that what I deserved and what I should have gotten didn't happen at all. I actually thought if only God was more gracious, I should have either been upgraded for all the work I do for Him 
or at the very least, get a free stay in Tokyo with spending cash. Everything that I had planned out in my mind didn't materialize, and I just sulked and was very upset all throughout the flight for what could have been. I kept staring into the business class section and thought, I should be up there if not for those thunderstorms. You know, as I think about this incident, I realized I have no right to be angry and disappointed. But I had such great plans in my head, and nothing went my way, and it seemed God wasn't helping. What are we supposed to do when nothing seems to go the way we wanted to? That's what we want to take a look at as we continue our sermon series, Voyager, studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 24 as we take a look at verses 1 to 27. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27. I read now verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders in a certain order named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When we last left Paul, he was brought to Caesarea Maritima for his own safety by the Roman garrison commander Claudius Lysias and entrusted to Felix, the Roman governor of the province of Syria, which included Judea. Felix asked that the religious leaders come to Caesarea to make their case against Paul in front of him, which they did. They even brought in an experienced and eloquent litigator in the person of Tertullus to make their case against Paul. Verses 2 to 4. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Look how Tertullus flattered and praised the governor by telling him that under his leadership, the province was enjoying peace and prosperity, and how everyone recognized his great leadership abilities. What an effective way to get the judge on your side. Verses 5 to 9. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. In these verses, Tertullus called Paul a creator of dissension, not just locally, but throughout the world, accusing Paul of profaning the temple, which, of course, he did not do, but basically painted Paul as someone undesirable to the peace, security, and prosperity of the Roman world, and so should be dealt with severely. The assembly of Jewish religious leaders that came from Jerusalem also agreed and gave concurrence to Tertullus' accusations. How can Paul defend himself against these charges? How can he turn the conversation spiritual before the Roman governor who held his life in his hands? Look at Paul's response, starting in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, 
I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul didn't try to flatter the governor. He just went straight to the facts of the case. He stated that he only went to worship in Jerusalem, that he didn't go to fight with anyone nor incite the crowd to violence, and that there's no proof or evidence that he did what he was accused of doing. Remember that even the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, had written Governor Felix saying he found Paul didn't commit any crimes that necessitated death or imprisonment. And yet, in spite of there being no evidence, Paul was in custody and brought to the provincial capital facing these false charges. Instead of enjoying the freedom that he deserved and doing the ministry he was called to do. In fact, throughout his ministry, as we've studied these past few weeks, many of the things that he had planned out for himself didn't go as planned whether it was to bring the gospel to all of Asia Minor, but was instead redirected by God to Europe, or when he partnered with Barnabas thinking that this would be the team, but instead ended up with Silas, or even when he wished to stay longer in some cities, but was led by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem earlier. Many of his own plans didn't come to fruition. Paul continued his defense in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul declared that whatever the accusations, he worshiped the one true God and continued to hold on to the teachings of the Scriptures. He didn't waver in his faith in God and in the Scriptures, even when things didn't go as he had planned. He still lived out the truths of the Scriptures and obeyed God. And this is our first principle for what we are to do when things don't go our way. We are to, number one, continue to worship God and obey His Word. Continue to worship God and obey His Word. You know, my friends, this is something very difficult to do at times, but Paul exemplified it for us. You see, many times when things don't go our way, we get angry or upset at God. We begin to question Him and find no real motivation to live according to the Scriptures in obedience. For example, if doing what is right doesn't seem to grant me any personal benefits or advantage, and may even be detrimental or disadvantage to me, why would I continue to be motivated to live out my faith? Why would I continue to trust in God and worship Him? But this, my friends, is when our faith becomes real, when we can continue to worship God and obey His Word even when things don't turn out the way I want it to. Can you declare as Job does in Job chapter 1, verse 21? Job chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After experiencing personal tragedies and losing everything in life, Job declared that he would continue to worship God. You know, people are usually close to God when they need something from Him, when they want something from Him, when they want to be blessed in life by Him. But when He doesn't give you what you and I want, do you still continue to worship Him, love Him, and live in obedience? Having three children, 
I know when they are the nicest and the most obedient. It's often in the weeks leading up to their birthdays or Christmas. Why? Because they want us as parents to buy them the gift they want. If they don't get what they want, or after they get what they want, somehow their attitude changes. I think you know what I mean. And this is human nature. Once the motivation is gone, why should I want to worship God and obey Him? And yet, this is what we're supposed to do. Karen Harmoning shares her struggles of worshiping God and acknowledging that He is good. But on June 8, 2017, their third daughter, Sarah, was killed in a bus crash outside of Atlanta, Georgia, while on her way to a mission trip in Botswana. She writes, The reality is, God didn't just let our family down. Disappointing us or letting us down sounds far too mild. Instead, in a blink of an eye, He allowed our family to plummet into a deep, dark, unimaginably painful pit. We had bathed our precious child in prayer, pleading for her safety. I had wrestled with putting her on that bus that morning and had prayerfully gone through the process of entrusting her to Him in His providential care as I allowed her to walk up those steps. I absolutely was hopeful, expecting Him to honor those prayers to keep her safe. And I was wretchedly, horribly, excruciatingly disappointed. Our family, she writes, identifies with Paul. Our good God has allowed us to be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, and we bear great sorrow and unceasing grief in our hearts, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and Romans chapter 9, verse 2 tells us. Our good God absolutely allows His children to be let down, disappointed, wounded, broken, grieved, persecuted, and even killed. He told us in His Word that He would. He repeatedly warns us we live in a fallen world and that we have an enemy who has come to steal, kill, and destroy, John chapter 10, verse 10. He warns us that we will endure fiery trials, as 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 tells us. And if that is not clear enough, He tells us, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. His goodness is completely independent of our circumstances. His goodness is not contingent on health, wealth, or prosperity. His goodness is not compromised by tribulation or suffering. To the contrary, His goodness is most powerfully experienced and displayed when He, our mighty deliverer, plunges into the pit with us, Psalm chapter 40. He is faithful to be there with us in the mire of heartbreak and agony, press in tight, and we struggle to breathe. He upholds us by His righteous right hand, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Though the waters rise, He will not allow us to be completely overtaken, Psalm 69. In the midst of our pain and suffering, His sustaining grace is poured out, enabling us to persevere and testify. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. Karen continues, Some have mocked our faith since the accident, presuming out of finite imagination that a good God would only allow good circumstances and would never allow us to be let down or disappointed in such a way 
as we have suffered. Such a view fails to take into account the totality of Scripture and the fact that this life is not the focus. It is but a flicker. When we look with earthly eyes at the painful circumstances of this temporal life, there seems no option but hopelessness and despair. However, when we view the struggles of this life through the lens of Scripture and eternality, God's goodness is clearly revealed. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. My friends, when things don't go as you've planned, you can still grieve and hurt, especially when terrible things happen in your life. But remember, you can also live, have hope, and even worship God in your grieving. I read now verse 15. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul now declared that his hope is in God and that there will be resurrection of the dead for both the just and the unjust. This is both declaring that he believed in the resurrection power of the Messiah Jesus, but also that justice will come to all people. It was a declaration to all listening and an assurance to Paul that even if justice is not seen in this life, it will eventually happen in the life to come. Remember, Paul knew he would not get a fair trial before the Sanhedrin, and that's why he sought to divide the jury when he declared that he was a Pharisee in the previous chapter. In the same way, Paul perhaps realized that he may not get a fair hearing in front of Felix with the odds stacked against him, with him alone versus the elders and chief priests, along with a seasoned litigator and a biased crowd behind them. So this truth was a source of assurance and comfort for the Apostle Paul that justice will come. My friends, when things don't go our way in life and life is unfair, continue to press on, being assured that the God who knows all and sees all will bring about justice to all people. Christians and non-Christians alike will be judged for all of their words and actions. The Bible is clear on this. For Christians, this occurs at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And for non-Christians, it will happen at the great white throne judgment, as Revelation chapter 20 tells us. No one gets away with anything. And this is the second thing we are to do when things seemingly don't go our way. Number two, have hope in God because justice will come. Have hope in God because justice will come. I know it's hard to keep the faith, especially when you see evil people get away with things and things in life seem so unfair. But my friends, press on and know that God will make all things right through Jesus. 
And that's why resurrection truth is so assuring. It means that people don't get away with anything. The Bible is clear that all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, will be resurrected from the dead to face their eternal punishment or receive their eternal rewards. This is the promise of God. So have hope in God because justice will come. Earlier this week, the church staff took our annual retreat to Bolanao, Pangasinan for a time of rest, bonding, sharing, and prayer. Although this year, because of the many ministry responsibilities with a smaller team, many of us work through part of this retreat. Anyway, weeks ago, we had booked a particular villa that seemed to be perfect for our retreat needs, and the pictures on the website look great. This villa was called the Panoramic Villa, and with a name like that, it must be awesome. So leaving Manila at 6 a.m. Monday morning and arriving there around 3 p.m., we were all tired from the long drive, but excited to check in and to unwind in what we thought would be a great place. But let me just warn us that pictures on a website and descriptions on a website can be deceiving. When we checked in, the four-room villa wasn't what we were expecting. There were broken lights, non-functional air conditioning, and the way the villa was designed was dangerous with stairs that were far too small. Further, the common spaces were not as convenient as was pictured, definitely not conducive to our retreat needs. We gathered as a staff to see what we would do. There was talk of driving five hours to Clark to lodge there overnight, or just spend one night there and return home. We were all so disappointed. Well, we went to the reception to complain of our dissatisfaction and how the description on the website wasn't reality. Sadly, the employee on duty who entertained our complaint wasn't accommodating at all. We could not believe her response. She said, if you have any complaints or issues, you can just write your comments on TripAdvisor or on social media. Would you want an employee like that? When we mentioned that the advertised private pool was so small it could maybe only fit two people and that it was more like a plunge pool, she said, well, we didn't advertise it would be an Olympic-sized private pool. What kind of response is that? Basically, there was nothing she could do or was even willing to do to try to help us solve our issues. Anyway, we felt helpless because we were not getting what we paid for. It was then the property manager, who happened to be a part owner, came out and addressed our concerns. And it was like night and day. He didn't want us to leave the property and said he would upgrade us to the penthouse villa, which was more expensive, but it would be for free. He even offered to throw in a free brutal fight dinner for all of our inconveniences and basically instructed his staff to take care of us. The view at the penthouse villa was even more beautiful than that of the panoramic villa. And let's just say no one complained about the upgrade. You know, this incident reminded me of how God's justice works out. It may not be at that moment we want it to be, but when it does happen, it is so satisfying, and you don't think much about the injustice again. Now look with me at verses 16 to 21. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with tumult. 
They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul strove to do what was right, and had a clear conscience, knowing he did nothing wrong. Note that his good conscience, without offense, was both toward God and men. Paul was someone who really self-reflected and looked in the mirror to assess his own life. You know, all too often, we have no problems looking at the lives of others and criticizing and complaining about someone else. But we don't like to look at ourselves to see areas of shortcoming that need to be addressed or things that we have done that need to be rectified. My friends, when things don't go as we have planned, it is a great opportunity for us to look in the mirror to assess our lives to see if the Lord is teaching us a lesson through what is happening or perhaps giving us a wake-up call to course correct what we're doing in life because God may be lovingly disciplining us to call our attention to an unaddressed matter in our lives. Paul told Governor Felix that after self-reflection, his conscience was clear before the Lord and with others. All he did was go to Jerusalem to give an offering to the Lord and charitable help to those in need. He didn't go to cause any disturbance to the peace. Paul even noted that the original accusers who supposedly saw Paul's actions were not present, which meant that the evidence presented was hearsay or unconfirmed rumors, and therefore there was no solid evidence to convict him. In verses 20 to 21, Paul continued his self-defense and stated that even the divided Sanhedrin with representatives in the hearing before Felix were unable to even convict Paul of any wrongdoing worthy of death or imprisonment, as the Roman commander Claudius Lysias had also concluded. Paul's simple defense before Felix was that this dispute was simply a theological disagreement over the concept of resurrection, which no Roman political or governmental official would want to decide on. This is why Paul's conscience was clear, without offense toward God and man, because truly he was not guilty of doing anything wrong. Even if he could not convince others, he found peace within himself and therefore able to speak with such boldness and clarity. And this is our third principle for what we are to do when nothing is going our way. Number three, keep a clear conscience before God and man. Keep a clear conscience before God and man. It has never been our Christian responsibility to get everyone to like us, to have everyone say or think good things about us, or even never to be accused of something we didn't do. But it is our responsibility as followers of Christ to live a life above reproach, to be guilt-free and without sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. You see, having a clear conscience will let you sleep well at nights and give you boldness to live for Christ. I remember the story of a shoplifter who wrote to a department store saying, I've just become a Christian and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here's $100 that I owe you. He signed his name and then added a little P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest of what I stole. My friends, a clear conscience when things aren't going great in your life 
is one of the most satisfying and peaceful feelings you will ever have. You will not care what others say about you because you know your standing is right before God and men. I'm also reminded of the life of Englishman John Bunyan, the godly pastor writer of the Christian classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. His life was not an easy one, as Piper writes about him. Ten years after they were married, when Bunyan was 30, his wife died, leaving him with four children under 10, one of them blind. A year later, in 1659, he married Elizabeth, who was a remarkable woman. The year after their marriage, however, Bunyan was arrested and put in prison for not conforming to the standards of the church of Charles II, the nation's new king. Elizabeth was pregnant with their firstborn and miscarried in the crisis. Then she cared for the four children as stepmother for 12 years alone and bore Bunyan two more children, Sarah and Joseph. For 12 years, Bunyan chose prison and a clear conscience over freedom and a conscience soiled by the agreement not to preach. He could have had his freedom when he wanted it, but he and Elizabeth were made of the same stuff. Though he was sometimes tormented that he might not be making the right decision in regard to his family, when asked to recant and not to preach, he said, If nothing will do unless I make of my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, I've determined the Almighty God, being my help and shield, yet to suffer if frail life might continue so long till even the moss shall grow on mine eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and principles. Bunyan was released from prison in 1672 because of the Declaration of Religious Indulgence, and soon after he wrote his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, about a fictional pilgrim journeying from the city of destruction to the celestial city, which I encourage all of us to read. My friends, may our lives be marked by a clear conscience before God and men, regardless of the difficult circumstances of our lives, be it false accusations or bearing the weight of injustice. I read now verses 22 to 25. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The Bible tells us that Felix didn't make a decision after the presentation of the arguments from both sides. He would defer his decision until Commander Claudius Lysias was able to make it to the provincial capital of Caesarea. While held in custody, Paul was given quite a lot of freedom allowed by Felix to have his friends visit and interact with him. Now what's interesting is that Felix and his wife Drusilla began to become curious about Christianity. They sent for Paul and listened to him preach about Christ and faith in him. Paul focused on three areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment, which are the core elements of the gospel message, that all people have sinned, that all will be judged for their sins, 
and that righteousness is what is required to enter into heaven. Therefore, sinful people, unable to save themselves and get through the judgment of a holy God to enter into heaven, need Jesus to save them because Christ died in our place and paid the price of our sin through His shed blood on the cross. And Jesus proved all this to be true when He conquered the grave and rose from the dead in His resurrection. So that if we place our trust in Jesus, then Christ's righteousness is imputed upon us and we are declared righteous in the sight of holy God and therefore have eternal life and can enter into heaven. This message shared by Paul seemed to be too much for Felix to handle. It made him afraid and uncomfortable to self-reflect and think about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because what you may not know about Felix is that Drusilla was his third wife, and he had to break up another marriage just to have Drusilla. He had used his previous marriage to royalty to advance his political career. His governorship was marked with injustice and corruption. No wonder these topics made him uncomfortable and afraid. In fact, this is true of everyone even today. It makes people uncomfortable when you talk with them about their sins, the need to live righteously, and the fact that we will all face judgment one day. So we all need Christ. And yet we must talk about these topics in spiritual conversations and at times make people feel uncomfortable in order to present to them the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus. My friends, if we never talk about these topics, people may die happily ignorant and comfortable, but their eternal destiny won't be so comfortable in hell and in the lake of fire. Now back to our story. Felix told Paul to leave until such time he would call for him again, verse 26 and 27. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Felix had many subsequent conversations with Paul, but as verse 26 tells us, it wasn't purely about matters of faith. It was to see if Paul would be willing to pay a bribe to him to secure his release. I believe Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but he wanted to get something out of it and so looked for a bribe. However, Paul was not willing to pay the bribe, and so he sat in prison for two years. Felix was eventually replaced by Festus because Rome had lost confidence in Felix's ability and leadership particularly in how he handled the crisis between Jews and Gentiles in Caesarea. However, before he was replaced, Felix did not release Paul, wanting to do the Jews a favor. Paul was innocent, but got caught up in politics. Two years is a long time to be imprisoned, especially when you are innocent, and the person with the power to release you knows you're innocent. Felix made it known multiple times what quote-unquote extra motivation he needed to get him to free Paul. If you were in Paul's position, would you have paid Felix to gain your freedom? It would have been so easy for Paul to take up a collection and then to pay the bribe so that he can resume the gospel work and secure his freedom. If conscience bothered him, then he could have had his friends pay off the bribe and not himself personally, so as to justify in his mind that it wasn't him. 
And this is just normal human thinking. Because naturally, when you and I don't get our way, we begin to think of unethical ways to get what we want. In our desperation to get what we want or to get the results we need, we will often forgo our convictions, sin, and then tell ourselves, I will just ask God for forgiveness later on. And yet the Bible is clear. For more than two years, innocent Paul would not pay the bribe, choosing to keep himself imprisoned for the sake of his testimony and character. Because frankly, he wouldn't have much of a Christian testimony if he paid the bribe. And we already noted that the Apostle Paul's desire was to maintain a good conscience before God and men. From these verses, we get our fourth biblical principle of what we are to do when things don't go our way. Number four, maintain a testimony of Christ-like character. Maintain a testimony of Christ-like character. In those difficult situations and circumstances, when things don't go as planned, our responsibility is to maintain a good testimony. We should reflect Christ. We should do as Jesus would do. So if, for example, a hotel room isn't what we'd imagine it to be, we can express our disappointment but still maintain our Christian testimony by controlling our anger. If the service isn't up to par with what we expected, then we can calmly and with the right words express our displeasure. If we have been hurt deeply or if someone stabs you in the back or if someone breaks a promise or breaks your trust, then we can express our hurts but still forgive as Christ would have done as hard as it may be. Now, this doesn't mean we let people take advantage of us or let them step all over us. This principle just means we're to maintain our Christian testimony with a Christ-like character at all costs. This is both for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake so that we can have the moral ascendancy and the platform to talk to people about the subjects of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and about the Jesus Christ who alone can provide a solution through His salvation. So, my friends, remember, when nothing goes your way, number one, continue to worship God and obey His Word. Number two, have hope in God because justice will come. Number three, keep a clear conscience before God and men. Number four, maintain a testimony of Christ-like character. Because at the end, it will turn out for the best, as God's ways are always the best, and His plans are never wrong. You see, when nothing goes my way, we have the confidence and assurance that everything always goes God's way. Oh, one more thing. On our 14-hour return flight from Texas to Japan, all five of us were upgraded to business class from the economy section for free because God knew the return flight for me to get rest was more important than going to the U.S. because I had to hit the ground running when I arrived here in Manila. God is good. Indeed, His ways are always the best ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this reminder that when nothing goes our way and we get upset and frustrated, we will continue to proclaim how great You are. We will continue to worship You and in obedience to the Scriptures, live our lives in such a way that we will reflect Christ in our testimony. May we continue to persevere in our Christian life, to have a clear conscience before God and man, 
because we know we don't have to be upset because justice will soon come in this life or in the next. So, Lord, when things don't go our way, it's because your perfect plan is at work and we can have confidence and faith and find peace that your way is always the best and it is perfect for our lives. Bless us, Lord. Challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.